There's a bit of a Twitter discussion going on right now about the ways in which Western white photojournalists picture their non-Western subjects. For example, filmmaker Benjamin Chesterton called out an adjudication committee for shortlisting a photographer for a prize when that photographer had, he claimed, behaved unethically in the ways in which he photographed a young Muslim female subject in an unnamed country in Africa potentially causing her significant harm. These ethical issues are not new, however, and stem from a long-standing point of view that we can call the Western gaze. The Western or European gaze treats non-Western subjects as different and inferior, but also as exotic, mysterious, or enticing. This gaze has a history that is connected to colonization, in this episode of Unboxing the Canon, called Thinking and Rethinking Orientalism, we will examine Orientalism as a particular version of the Western gaze that influenced many 19th century European painters. Unboxing the Canon takes a closer look at the history of Western art. We might be seduced by the pretty packaging, such as soft brushstrokes, brilliant colors, grand gestures, expert carving, even traditional iconography. But what happens when we take a deeper look? When we open the packaging and see what might have been invisible, or what is a cultural blind spot? Join me, Professor Linda Steer, and co-host Madeline Collins for a take on art history that connects the past to the present, critiques the canon, and reveals what might not be immediately apparent in Western art and its institutions. Welcome back. So you might be wondering, what is Orientalism? And why is it important to think about it? Before we get to that, though, we have some changes at Unboxing the Canon to announce. I'm so pleased that the podcast now has a research assistant. Madeline Collins is a fourth-year undergraduate student in the History of Art and Visual Culture program at Brock University. She's conducted a lot of the research for this episode, and she's co-hosting with me. Welcome, Madeline. Hi. It's great to be a part of this project. Okay, so back to Orientalism. Well, Orientalism is both a Western art movement and a way of seeing that is connected to the politics and effects of colonization. Orientalist art visually expressed European ideas and stereotypes about people living in the geographic area that used to be called the Orient. Today, that area is Turkey, parts of the Middle East, and parts of North Africa. Orientalist art imagined or reinvented this part of the world as subject matter for Western consumption. Orientalist works appropriated Near Eastern settings, designs, and histories, yet represented people from North Africa and the Middle East according to xenophobic and imperialist Western ideas. So the men were often depicted as passive, lazy, or perhaps violent. And the women were sexualized and shown as exotic. Artists painted North African and the Middle Eastern culture as decidedly unmodern, even ancient. 
There are some similarities here to European depictions of North American indigenous peoples that we covered in an episode in Season 1. You might remember that artists depicted First Nations people as a, quote, dying race that represented the past, which of course supported American and Canadian appropriation of Indigenous lands. If you remember that episode, you will not be surprised then that it is no coincidence that Orientalist art in France developed alongside the Napoleonic invasion of Egypt in 1798. Palestinian-American scholar Edward Said, who wrote an influential book called Orientalism in 1978, noted that the art movement occurred amid the beginning of, quote, the greatest territorial acquisition ever known, end quote. Said reminds us that, quote, by the end of World War I, Europe had colonized 85% of the earth, end quote. So let's take a look at a couple of French Orientalist paintings and see how they express these ideas. Both Eugène Delacroix and Jean-Léon Jérôme painted scenes that were meant to represent the Orient. And I'm putting quotes around the word Orient here as it is important to recognize that it is a misnomer. <laughs> Delacroix's large oil painting, and by large I mean it is approximately 12 by 16 feet, that hangs in the Louvre Museum in Paris, titled The Death of Sardanapalus, depicts the story of mythical ancient Assyrian ruler Sardanapalus, who, upon his defeat in a war with the Babylonians and others, burned himself and all his luxuries and possessions, including his eunuchs and concubines. This story first told in ancient Greek texts, appeals to poets and painters of the Romantic movement in literature and art because of its high drama and themes of excess, explicit violence, and engagement with the limits of human behavior. Delacroix depicts a dramatic scene in lush reds and yellows. This chaotic scene is difficult to read visually. Dark smoke billows from the background, and at the top left of the canvas, we see the Assyrian leader in white, atop a luxurious divan that is held up by carved golden elephant heads. Sardanapalus reclines calmly, a neutral expression on his face, as scenes of violence unfold around him. The naked or partially naked women's bodies writhe in passive and submissive poses as they are threatened or stabbed with knives. A bejeweled dead or dying woman splays her arms across the divan, face down in submission to a ruler who will not save her. The artist has used lighting to highlight the whiteness of the skin of these concubines, allowing viewers to peruse their bodies. Those with darker skin are relegated to the edges of the painting, including the smoky background. For instance, in the lower left corner, we see a man in deep blue cloth wrestling with a beautifully decorated but terrified horse, his red turban connecting him to the red harness of the horse and the red carpets and the red velvet of the luxurious oversized divan. The canvas is filled with bodies in motion, 
rich cloth and luxury objects in gold and silver. These objects, textiles, and figures are signifiers of difference that say, not European. According to art historian Nancy Demerdash, Delacroix employs common Orientalist tropes in the death of Sardanapalus, such as an angry despot, pitiful yet sensual women, and violence. This reminds us of who this painting is for. This is a painting for a European audience, particularly a male French audience. It was shown at the Salon, a large annual art exhibition in Paris, in 1828. Delacroix's painting shocked audiences for both its style and its subject matter, but as art historian Linda Nochlin writes, the belief that men, quote, were naturally entitled to the bodies of certain women, end quote, was an assumption in 19th century French society. So who are these certain women? Well, women of the lower classes in France and, especially, women who were not French, not European, here the so-called Oriental Other. For Nochlin, paintings like this one are a, quote, project of the imagination, a fantasy space or a screen onto which strong desires can be projected with impunity, end quote. Delacroix's painting certainly derives from his imagination. It depicts a story that didn't happen, and the painter created it in France, in his studio, far from the land he purports to depict. When the painting was displayed at the Salon, the erotic and sadistic desires of fantasy were visible to a public, representing what Nochlin lists as two ideological assumptions about power. Number one, men's power over women, where women are subservient to men and are possessions for male fantasy. And number two, white men's superiority to other races, where Europeans are perceived as civilized and righteous in comparison to other cultures, such as the Islamic world. Delacroix's The Death of Sardanapalus displays both these tendencies. Let's turn now towards another iconic French Orientalist painting from later in the 19th century. Jean-Léon Jérôme painted the slave market in 1871. While Delacroix painted in a romantic style, Jérôme employed an academic naturalist style that lent an air of legitimacy and objectivity to his work. Much smaller than Delacroix's painting, at about two and a half by two feet, the slave market depicts a theme that Jérôme returned to often. Here we see a row of young women who are naked, clothed, or partially clothed, and are lined up in a medina or old quarter alleyway in the foreground. While a clothed man, ostensibly their seller, looks over them from an open window at the right side of the canvas. Orientalist visual tropes include the carpet the women sit on, the crumbling facade of the building, the hookah the man holds in his hand, and the parrot that sits atop a cabinet next to him. None of the women meet our gaze, and as Nochlin notes, they are unwilling innocents to be pitied by French viewers. 
Again, in employing the white Western gaze and in presenting a fictional scene as reality, this painting creates a dichotomy between the supposed civilized Europeans and uncivilized Arabs. According to Nochlin, here Jerome uses women's bodies to provide a kind of satisfaction to the moralistic voyeur. The Clark Institute claims that paintings such as this, quote, appeal to France's assumptions of its own moral superiority as it expanded its colonial empire across North Africa. So this painting produces a kind of knowledge about the Oriental other, and as Said claims, to have knowledge of something is to dominate it and to have authority over it. Therefore, through painting and other kinds of knowledge, the people of the so-called Orient are reframed as a subject race, dominated by a race that knows them and what is good for them better than they could possibly know themselves. And I'm quoting Said here. So Orientalism is a form of infantilization that serves European colonial purposes. None of the knowledge and advances of the Islamic world, such as mathematics, literature, art, architecture, none of that is present in these paintings. Instead, we see what Demardash calls cultural, spatial, and visual mythologies and stereotypes that have impacted the formation of knowledge and the process of knowledge production. So why does all of this matter? Well, here we are almost 200 years after Delacroix painted the death of Sardanapalus, and these stereotypes continue. We see them every day in documentary photography, in news reports, in films, and in other media. If nothing else, looking at these paintings shows us the power of stereotypes, along with the power of art to create and maintain them over centuries. What can be done? Well, we can use art to critique, change, and expose those stereotypes. I'll turn now to Madeline, who will tell us about some interesting examples from contemporary art that engage with the history of Orientalism. Thanks, Linda. So, now that we've had a taste of French Orientalist paintings and their perspectives, we can look towards current artists and their techniques that break down those art historical boundaries. As we just heard, Orientalist paintings are made with a gaze that is almost exclusively white, male, and Western. But there are many contemporary Middle Eastern and North African artists who are working to represent their own cultures and communities through their own eyes, without the superior tone or fantastical inaccuracies that have plagued European representations of the East. One of these artists is Lala Essaidi, a Moroccan photographer whose bold, meaningful portraits of Muslim women create a dialogue between viewers and our perceptions of Arab female identity. Based on her experience of growing up in Morocco, Essaidi presents a modern female gaze that pictures Arab women and the issues they face. 
To do this, Sadie frequently appropriates traditional Orientalist tropes and techniques in order to reclaim or subvert its ideals. Her Harem series of 2009 and Harem Revisited series of 2012 consist of portraits of Muslim women in interior settings. In Harem number one, for example, a young Muslim woman reclines on one arm on a bed that is enclosed within an alcove of a room, caging her by architecture within architecture. The bed is adorned in brilliant geometric motifs of white, blue, green, and black, like a mosaic tile pattern. Her draped clothing is the same pattern, meaning that she is nearly camouflaged into the furniture, as if she's become a part of it. Despite her passive pose, her serious gaze looks right into our eyes, unflinching. She doesn't look down or away, like many of the women in French Orientalist paintings. Isadi references multiple historical works here. Firstly, the pose of the girl is reminiscent of famous odalisques. An odalisque was a common visual trope that featured a reclining nude woman, but typically a Muslim woman in a harem. This trope was used by many Orientalist painters, including Jean-Léon Jerome. The word odalisque derives from a Turkish word meaning to belong to a place, a fitting definition, as a Sadie series highlights the importance of architectural space in Islamic culture. Public space, she writes on her website, belongs to men, and private space, in the home and behind the veil, is defined by women, who are ultimately confined to these limited spaces which are controlled by men. In her series, The Home is the True Harem, another domain where women's bodies are governed. Upon closer inspection, the model's skin is heavily decorated with flowing, uninterrupted text written in henna, a type of temporary body art that is applied and worn exclusively by women. However, the text itself is in the sacred style of Islamic calligraphy, an art form typically practiced exclusively by men. By synthesizing the feminine art of henna and the masculine art of calligraphy, the image's meaning becomes layered and culturally significant. The women are finally given the ability to speak through the henna, as well as able to find a place in a tradition typically dominated by men. Isadi's women are able to transcend multiple gendered boundaries at once, physically, the boundaries of the domestic indoors, and metaphorically, the subordinate space of womanhood. The claustrophobic architectural surroundings in Isadi's works reminds us of Jerome's so-called moralizing details in architecture, where he would depict shabby buildings and dirty cities as a form of proof to the Europeans that the Islamic world is neglected and crumbling. Isadi revamps this condescending trope. Rather than appeasing European superiority over the other, she instructs her audience by presenting the unseen perspective of the oppression facing Muslim women today. While French Orientalist works are based in fantasy, Isadi roots her images in reality. look at another artist working to modernize Eastern representation, Monir Sharudi Farman Farmayan. Farman Farmayan was an Iranian artist and sculptor whose works combine Eastern and Western influences into a unique sculptural style. She incorporates religious and traditional Islamic craft, such as mirror mosaics, reverse glass painting, and mazes, 
as well as following practices such as cosmology and Islamic geometry. She blends these traditions with the methods of minimalism and modern sculpture to create a cross-cultural style unique in the American art scene. Farman Farmayan apprenticed to local craftspeople in Iran before and after she moved to New York and immersed herself in its art world. Her signature style began in 1970 after she visited the Shah Chirag Mosque in Shiraz and was dazzled by its lavish, mirrored, mosaic-laden interior. Rather than the stagnant nature of Orientalism, which depicts a specific subject for a specific audience, Farman Varmayan's works are multivalent, conceptual, and universal, providing diverse experiences and meanings for those different audiences in different contexts. In 2013, she produced a series called Fourth Family, one of several family series of sculptures. Starting at a triangle and ending with a decagon, the series contains one of each geometric shape, each decorated with a mosaic-like pattern of even more polygons. For example, the nonagon shape of the series, which is 47 inches in diameter and made of mirror pieces and plaster, looks like a swirling whirlpool made of silver. The angular arms are reminiscent of labyrinth-like mazes, and the face is decorated with an elegantly repeating pattern of diamonds and triangles. The mysterious object is simultaneously familiar and foreign, a transcultural abstraction that plays with dimension and light. In Islamic design, the triangle represents the intelligent human body, with infinite configurations and thus infinite possibilities. But Farman Farmayon's avant-garde objects showcase this iconography in a completely new way. Her art is not limited by a paternalistic view of the other, as the Orientalists were, but instead it is made limitless through its multiple perspectives and its ability to be understood by all. We are all equal in the reflections of her mirrors. Her work is evocative and complex. It speaks to the long history of traditional, non-referential Islamic art that uses geometry, but there's something futuristic about it as well. So looking into the future, we see Middle Eastern and North African contemporary artists who are no longer the subjects of the imperial gaze, but are now presenting their own narratives in their own voices. We encourage you to explore more Eastern artists and their work as we continue to widen our perspective on the world of art because there are so many more connections to be made. And we have put links in the notes for this episode, so you can see the work of some of these artists. And that's it for this episode. Bye for now. Season 2 of Unboxing the Canon is hosted and produced by Professor Linda Steer. Our sound designer and contributing researcher is Madeline Collins, who is also reading these credits. If you like Unboxing the Canon, please subscribe and rate us on any of the main podcast apps. Because this podcast is an OER, it is free to download and use in your own teaching and learning. If you do use it in your class, we would love to know. You can find us on Twitter at Canon Unboxing or Instagram at Unboxing the Canon. You can also write to unboxingthecanon at gmail.com. 
Financial support for this podcast comes from the Humanities Research Institute and Match of Minds, both at Brock University. Brock University is located on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples, many of whom continue to live and work here today. We encourage you to learn about the history of the Indigenous people and the treaties and agreements that govern the territory where you live. Our region is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties and is within the land protected by the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Agreement. We acknowledge that our great standard of living is directly related to the resources and friendship of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples.